Dear ones, the truth of the matter is, as we look to the scripture, that your children are indeed a precious gift from the Lord. You know, the Bible teaches that, in fact, your children do not belong to you. But ultimately, they belong to God, as we see in Ezekiel chapter 16, very clearly. In this particular passage, God is warning Israel, is warning Jerusalem, in fact, and Jerusalem, uh, Judah, that their transgressions against God, as it pertains in, in particular to the way they are treating their children, is a grave offense against God. They are offering their children as sacrifices. Now, we might say that violates the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. But God does not simply appeal to the fact of his moral law that they ought not to kill. He says, what you are doing is you are offering my children, which you bore to me. These are mine. And look what you are doing with that which is mine. They are gods by covenant. Which leads Christian parents to a very important decision that they will need to make. A question that they will have to ask. Should I have my infant children baptized? You know, there was a time in my own life Years ago, in which I would have said, absolutely not. You should not have your infant children baptized. Perhaps you were there at one time as well. I would have said, no, no one should be baptized who cannot first believe the gospel and place his faith in the gospel and can verbally acknowledge that profession of faith. Only those should be baptized. And then I would have followed that with the fact that infant baptism from a more pragmatic argument gives Christian children the idea that they're already saved. Those children who have been baptized, it would imply that they're already saved, that they do not need to profess faith in Jesus. I would have pointed to the fact, show me a passage in the New Testament where one infant is specifically said to have been baptized. And I finally would have nailed the coffin of infant baptism by concluding infant baptism is simply a leftover, unfinished business from the Roman Catholic Church. The reformers simply didn't go far enough in reforming. Well, obviously, I'm before you today. I've administered the sacrament of baptism to one of our covenant children today. Something has changed in my life, in my convictions. And I want to share with you, proclaim to you the truth of what God says in his holy word about our children 
See, I think that we can, even if we give some kind of credence to infant baptism, we can come to the place where we simply tolerate it, but we are not benefiting from what is going on. We simply see this as a pertaining and applying only to that child, but we don't see how God calls us each one to participate by renewing our own covenant vows. Do you, in fact, dear ones, rejoice in God's covenant? One preliminary question I'd like to ask you before we get into the body of this sermon is just this. How long is a commandment of God considered to be legally and morally binding once it has been enacted? For five years? For ten years? For a hundred years? How long? Well, it's legally and morally binding until God repeals it. And God must repeal it. He must say, this no longer applies. Otherwise, we would assume that the commandment of God continues, whatever that commandment may pertain to. If we take the case of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, how long were the sacrifices that were offered upon the altar to continue? What we find by reading in the New Covenant very explicitly in Hebrews chapter 10 and other chapters of Hebrews, that the sacrificial system were shadows which pointed to Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And they have been repealed. And all of those things that explicitly pertain to the temple and to the tabernacle, to that form of worship of old, have been repealed. It's like when I command my children, I want you every day when you wake up to make your beds. Now, do I need to repeat that commandment every day for my children to believe that that commandment continues from day to day to day? Or should they rather assume once I have stated something until mom and dad repeal it? in some way, or qualify it in some way, that it continues as they originally stated it. And so the question is, did God give a commandment to administer the sign of the covenant to children, to even infants? Has God given such a command to administer the sign of his gracious covenant to Children, And I emphatically say, yes, he has given such a commandment and that commandment has never been repealed in the word of God. Therefore, beloved, your infant children should be baptized in obedience to God's command. The first main point is simply to look at that place where the commandment was first given. So turn with me back to the passage which was read earlier. 
Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. And I'll focus my attention primarily upon verses 9 through 14. So let me read those passages for you once again. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any stranger who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And we see in verse 23, so Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to him. Then in chapter 21, verse 4. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. But someone may say, after reading those passages, this passage mentions only circumcision. It says nothing about baptism. In fact, this was a commandment for the children of Abraham. We're not the children of Abraham. We're Christians. How can this commandment possibly apply to us? I'll hold those questions just for a moment. I need to say something about this covenant which God established with Abraham. Need to indicate, first of all, what is a covenant? If we want to talk about circumcision, if we want to talk about baptism as signs of the covenant, we need to understand what a covenant is. And so I want to spend just a few moments talking about that. Well, a covenant, very simply, dear ones, is a sovereign relationship of grace in which God promises blessing to those who trust him, love him and keep his commandments. But also in which God threatens cursing and judgment to those who disbelieve him, do not love him and demonstrate their lack of love for God by rebelling against his commandments, turning their backs upon his covenant. 
Dear ones, one of the most important and blessed words in all of Scripture is the word covenant. It is by means of covenant that God has revealed himself to man. God revealed himself to Adam by means of a covenant. God continues to reveal himself through his word, through his covenant word, by means of covenant. It is by means of covenant that we relate to one another in our families. Family is a covenant relationship. It's entered into by a husband and wife who enter into a covenant with one another. We relate to one another by means of covenant in the church. We have witnessed today those who have professed the covenant. Who have covenanted before God that they would be faithful to him. We relate to one another by means of covenant in the civil government. The civil magistrates are to take covenants before God. And even where they do not explicitly do so, they are bound to do so. In all areas of life, we are in covenant, regardless of what area of business. We can't have the secular, sacred distinction as to the covenant. Covenant relates to what you do, ladies at home, in your neighborhood, men in your jobs. Covenant relates children to those with whom you play, what you do in studying and and learning more about the world that God has created. Everything in this life is covenantal. Because God is a covenant God. Because the Lord of the covenant is Lord over all, therefore his covenant encompasses all. And we are bound to obey his covenant law, his covenant commandments in every area of life. Every ethical decision that we make is a covenant decision. Either keeping covenant with God at that point or breaking covenant with God at that point. And we must view the covenant as all-encompassing to understand it aright. You see, all men, women, and children are related to God covenantally, either as covenant breakers through Adam or covenant keepers through the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will pour forth blessing upon those who are covenant keepers, but will pour forth his almighty and furious wrath upon those who are covenant breakers. Let me simply mention that the covenant, I've alluded to that, there are two main covenants that God entered into, one with Adam, in which all mankind are represented by Adam, and that first covenant, the covenant of works. When Adam, their mediator, fell, All men fell with him. But God did not leave man in that condemned situation. God established a covenant of grace with his son 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, represented as federal head, was the mediator of this covenant with all of those whom God had chosen from the beginning of the world, from before the foundations of the earth. Those whom he had elect were elect in Christ Jesus, in covenant with Christ Jesus. And on the basis of that, Christ comes to die for those that God has given to him to save. And the Holy Spirit is sent to apply that redemption to those whom Christ died to save. Under the covenant of grace, there are sub-covenants, if we might call them that, which God has instituted throughout redemptive history. The covenant and these are all a part of the covenant of grace. They are not to be viewed as anything other than God's gracious covenants, expressions of God's covenant of grace. His covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David and with Christ in the new covenant. Those covenants are all expressions of his covenant of grace. And then. Let me simply say that there are these five characteristics about God's covenants. These five characteristics. First of all, God's covenants are sovereign. We must understand in covenant relationship with God, there's not this is not a covenant or a relationship of equals. God sovereignly enters into covenant with Noah with Abraham, with David. God takes the initiative in entering into covenant with people. God initiates. God states the conditions or God stipulates the terms. It is God, not man. There is sovereign. This is not a democracy. Covenantal relationships are not a democracy. It is a theocracy with Christ as king, as mediator of the covenant. God establishes the covenant, dear ones, and man must keep it. And so that's the first characteristic of God's covenants. They're sovereign. Second of all, God's covenants are gracious. They are merciful. They are mediated. All of these various covenants from Noah to the new covenant. They are mediated through Christ and applied from Christ to man. In Adam, all die, but in Christ, all shall be made alive. All of those who are in Christ shall be made alive. Only Christ, dear ones, is the perfect mediator. Only Jesus Christ could keep all of the terms of the covenant. None of us can keep the terms of the covenant which God has established with us. We are all, in that sense, covenant breakers. If it were not for the covenant keeping of Jesus Christ and his righteousness being imputed to us, we would stand under God's just condemnation. And so God's covenants are gracious, mediated through Christ. Thirdly, the terms of the covenant. We are called under the terms of the covenant to trust God, to love God, and to keep his commandments. To believe in Jesus Christ, 
to love him with our heart, soul, mind and strength and to obey him. The terms of the covenant. But fourthly, there are also signs associated with the covenant. Signs. God gives outward covenant signs to signify and seal the fact that God has, in fact, indeed established his covenant with men. He's established his covenant with his people so as to continually encourage his people and to remind them of their covenant obligations to love and obey him. And to look to Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. Covenant signs. For example, with Noah, the covenant sign was the rainbow. With Abraham, the covenant sign was circumcision. With Moses, it was the Passover. With David, it was the throne. I will establish your throne. And the new covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Covenant signs that God has given. Last thing I want to say with regard to the characteristics of the covenant is that the covenants of the, the various covenants under the covenant of grace, beginning with Noah, working your way through Christ and the new covenant. They are all organically related to one another. This is an extremely important issue, I believe, today. Dear ones, because God's covenant of grace with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and in the new covenant, because they are consecutive and historical covenants, one covenant is built upon the other. It is not the effect of the new covenant wiping out and abolishing the previous covenant but rather one covenant as it is built upon the, the other affirms what was said in the previous covenant unless in the succeeding covenants God qualifies what was said unless God abrogates, rescinds what was said. We are to assume that God continues his covenant commandments from one covenant to the next, not to assume that we start all over again. When Abraham received the, the covenant that God established with him, was he, was he to assume that God had abolished the covenant that he had made with Noah? Or was he rather to assume that, yes, even though he didn't specifically state anything about Noah, that that covenant pertained to him as well? Most of us understand, yes, that the covenant that was spoken to Noah, that God will not destroy the world again by water, by a worldwide flood, does pertain to us as well. And we look to the rainbow in the sky as an indication of that covenant. That continues. And so likewise, all of God's covenants continue in the same manner unto his people. There is a particular view that is prevalent among churches today, which teaches that the covenant has to be 
renewed and ratified. All of the terms of the previous covenant have to be renewed and ratified in the succeeding covenants or we are not and cannot assume that those things continue into the succeeding covenants. <coughs> this is held by those who call themselves dispensationalists. It is at odds. I'm con- I'm convinced with the word of God itself. I do not believe that God teaches that. And to illustrate the difference between these two views of the covenant, I said that one of the the final characteristic of God's covenants is that they are organically related. We can explain that organic relationship this way, that we can see the various aspects of a flower The organic development and growth of a flower as the organic growth and development of God's covenant through the ages. That as it begins with a seed, it sprouts a stem. And pretty soon we see a bud. And before long, there is a blossom. We wouldn't say that that's an altogether different flower than it was in its seed form. It is organically related to that which it was in seed form. In like manner, we could apply this whole idea of that which is organically related to the illustration of a butterfly. You begin with a caterpillar, which then spins a cocoon, and out comes the butterfly. That butterfly is organically related to that caterpillar that it began with. Or a human being, the various development, developmental stages of a human being, beginning with a baby and a toddler, a child, a youth, an adult. The adult is the same person as David spoke in Psalm 139 that was in a mother's womb. Different stages, growth and development. That's how we should view the various covenants working to that new covenant, that expression of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Whereas the dispensational view would have more the idea of of this covenantal movement from Abraham to Moses to David, etc., etc., as like being in a room and going out of the room and shutting the door behind you and going into another room, shutting the door behind you and going to another room and shutting the door behind you. There's no development. You close the door on what has happened previously because it's not restated in the succeeding covenants. But dear ones, I would proclaim to you that we are not to assume discontinuity between the covenants, but rather continuity that God is building upon each succeeding expression of his covenant. And so we come back to the covenant that God established with Abraham. God entered into this gracious covenant with him. He was not worthy of this. And yet God chose Abraham, called him out by name, changed his name, called him to inherit eternal life and established his covenant with him. And so let us see, first of all, that God 
sovereignly, graciously established his covenant with Abraham. I will be your God. God said to Abraham, I will be your God. But we see as we continue through the text that God not only said that he would establish his gracious covenant with Abraham, but that he would as well establish his gracious covenant with Abraham's seed or descendants. His children. And that's why the covenant sign was administered to Ishmael and was administered to Isaac and was administered to all males within his household. Not only to those who could believe, but to all males, whether they could believe at that particular point in time or express their faith publicly as adults can. That was not the requirement. God said, apply the sign of the covenant to yourself as well as to your descendants, to your children. Notice, furthermore, God calls this in verses 7 and 13 an everlasting covenant that he is establishing with Abraham and his seed to make him the father of many nations. And we find the fulfillment of that certainly in the the bringing in of the nations, the Gentiles into the covenant in the new covenant. <clears throat> this covenant is an everlasting covenant. It does not stop at the end, the last page of the Old Testament. This is an everlasting covenant that continues on and on and on, as long as God has a people upon the face of this earth. And finally, looking at this first passage, I would have you note <coughs> that the outward visible sign of this covenant was circumcision. It was that which God administered to to uh, Abraham or gave to Abraham as a sign and he was to administer that same outward visible sign to his children, to all of those males within his family, within his household. As I mentioned, as I baptized uh, Gary this Lord's Day, you see, when we administer the sacrament of baptism, just as Abraham administered the sacrament of circumcision. That is indicating again and again and again that that child is in need of a savior. What are we to say about our children? Are they in some kind of period in which they're not accountable to God during that particular period of their life? until they profess their faith in Jesus Christ? What do we say from that period of time? Are they accountable? Are they sinners? Do they stand in need of God's grace and mercy? Baptism indicates that. Circumcision indicates that. They need to be cleansed from the flesh. They need to have the flesh removed. They need to have sin removed. Just like adults do.
circumcision was God's outward stamp upon Abraham and upon his children, that Abraham and all of his children belonged to the Almighty God. I have a ring on my finger here. That ring signifies and seals that I belong to somebody. Don't belong to every woman on the face of the earth. I don't belong to every woman in Edmonton or every woman in this church. I belong uniquely to one woman. I belong to my wife. She belongs to me and she carries or wears a ring for the same purpose. Just as well, this covenant sign of circumcision says to Abraham and all of the seed, you belong to me. You do not belong to the gods of this world, no matter what they may be called. You belong to me and I separate you and set you apart as indicating that you belong to me. We are to understand that this covenant sign of circumcision was not an ethnic sign for Jews alone, but a sign of important spiritual value. That is what Romans chapter four, verse verse 11 says. It's a sign and seal the righteousness which Abraham had obtained from God before he was circumcised. It is a sign and a seal and points to the need for righteousness other than our own, for forgiveness from God. And so it is of great spiritual value. It is not the ethnic aspects that we are to consider important. And lastly, the concerning this covenant sign of circumcision. It says, if any male did not wear it, that he was to be cut off from God's people. That indicates that this is serious business to God. To not wear the covenant sign of circumcision was to be cut off from God's people. In fact, you remember, as Moses was traveling to Egypt with his wife Zipporah, Moses' son had not been circumcised and God met him on the way and would have taken his life had his wife Zipporah not taken a flint stone and cut the foreskin of her son. This is serious business in God's economy. God calls his covenant children to wear the sign of the covenant. And so quickly, as I summarize this very first point, God, first of all, made a gracious and sovereign covenant with Abraham. Secondly, it was made with all of Abraham's descendants. Thirdly, the outward sign of the covenant was circumcision and all infants are to wear that covenant sign as well. 
Fourthly, to not have the sign of God's covenant was an indication of covenant breaking. And fifthly, before the period of Mosaic law, this was instituted. In other words, it is not a part of specifically Mosaic law. It continued. It began with Abraham and continued through Moses to David, to the prophets, to the Lord Jesus Christ. At which time the Lord changed the covenant sign from circumcision to baptism. I might also mention that all females were viewed as being a part of the covenant through the male circumcision. They were not viewed as being outside the covenant. They were viewed as being a part of the covenant as well. The second point that I want to make is not only was the covenant and the commandment first given to Abraham and that covenant sign was given to Abraham. But now I would have you see that that same commandment and that same covenant which God gave to Abraham continues to God's people today. And so let us consider Galatians chapter three very quickly. Galatians chapter three. Let me first state under this point that the promises God made to Abraham in that covenant are still binding. They are not like the promises that many men and women make with one another in marriages today, where if something goes wrong in the marriage that they don't particularly care for, they can just automatically break covenant. This covenant that God has established with Abraham continues on and on and on. It is an everlasting covenant. Notice what God says through the Apostle Paul in verses 15 through 18 concerning this covenant that was made with Abraham. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant Yet, if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. We are to learn from that that the covenant God made with Abraham is not changed, is not abrogated as it comes to Moses, as he will now say. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed, who is Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul certainly understood as he read the account of Abraham in the Old Testament, that the covenant did apply to his children and to all of his descendants as well. Paul was not oblivious to that. That's why he says. In Galatians 3:29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, plural, according to the promise made to Abraham. So Paul, by emphasizing the singular aspect of seed, is not denying the fact that the covenant was made with many. 
But he's emphasizing that the true seed to which this covenant points through which it is realized is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the seed, even though there are other seeds, as it were, he is the seed of Abraham. And therefore, all of those who are related to Christ are related to Abraham and partake in the blessings and the covenant that was made to Abraham. Moses' covenant did not annul that. Notice what he says in verse 17. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, the law coming through Moses, cannot annul the covenant, cannot annul the Abrahamic covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. See, that Abrahamic covenant was confirmed in Jesus Christ as the mediator of that covenant. That it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. <laughs> and so that's the first point I want you to see in this passage. The promises God made to Abraham in that covenant are still binding. Second of all, the true children of Abraham are those, whether Jew or Gentile, who believe in Jesus Christ. Those are the true children of Abraham. They are the true seed of Abraham. Those who believe in Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in Galatians chapter three, verses six through nine. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the nations by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you, all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. <clears throat> Verses 13 through 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. And then verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. <clears throat> And so if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, dear ones, if you've been saved from your sin, if you have repented and you're trusting only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you are the heirs of the promise made to Abraham. That means that God promises you, just as he did Abraham, that he will be a God to you and to your children, because that was the promise. I will be a God to you and to your descendants. That's the promise God made with Abraham. And if you are Abraham's seed, that promise applies to you. What a blessed promise. What a blessed privilege is yours as Christian parents because of God's gracious covenant, dear ones. And finally, note from this passage very carefully 
that the outward sign of the covenant has been changed by God's own command from circumcision to baptism. Turn with me to Galatians 3:26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized, not circumcised into Christ, but baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Baptism is now the sign of the new covenant which God has established with his people. All of Abraham's children now are to receive the sign of baptism, which can be applied as well to females. A bloodless sacrament, not like that of circumcision, points to the fact that there is now no need to shed blood because Jesus Christ has once and for all shed his blood. Both circumcision and baptism signify, mean essentially the same thing, the removal of the flesh, the removal of sin in Christ. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we see that the Apostle Paul says that circumcision is baptism. They are identified with one another. Colossians 2, 11 says, In him that is in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Notice, by the circumcision of Christ. Now, what is the circumcision of Christ? Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When Jesus proclaimed to his disciples, go therefore... A disciple all nations, baptizing them, not circumcising them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He, by his own authority, which was given to him, all authority which he had in heaven and on earth, changed that aspect, that outward form of the covenant. Not the essence of the covenant, not the promises of the covenant, but that one aspect at that point of the covenant that was made with Abraham. And so to summarize from the second passage, number one, God promises, or I'm sorry, the promises that God made to Abraham in the covenant are still binding. And second, the true children of Abraham are all who trust in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, the outward sign of the covenant is now baptism. The last passage, very quickly, that I want you to turn to is Acts 2.39. This passage will, I believe, bring this all together. This is in the midst of sermon, uh, the sermon which the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. As he proclaims the gospel, the, those listening to Peter say, what shall we do? And Peter said to them in verse 38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39. For the promise is to you 
and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Peter says the promise, promise of what? Well, the promise of the father, the promise of the spirit is for you and your children. These promises that are contained under the Abrahamic covenant pertain to you and your children and to all who God will call unto himself. You see, the Abrahamic covenant speaks, includes rather, the promise of the spirit. According to Galatians 3.14, this is not talking about a different promise. Peter wasn't referring to a different promise. He was referring to the promise that God made to Abraham and God was now showing forth through the promise of the father, the gift of the spirit. Acts 2, or I'm sorry, Galatians 3.14 says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. The promises which God made to Abraham are realized through the promise of the spirit, which we receive through faith. Since Peter doesn't specifically specify how old these children are to whom the promises are made, we are to understand, I believe, that since there is no qualification that they pertain to all of our children. They pertain to those children who are born to the seed of Abraham. In fact, it's essentially the same promise which God gave to Abraham in Genesis 17, verses 7, 9, where he said he makes his covenant with you, Abraham, and with your children. So God would give his promise to the children of Abraham, even the infant children of Abraham. And even therefore, the infant children of Abraham are to wear the sign of that covenant promise. And that's why the Lord Jesus, I believe, in Mark chapter 10, when he calls the children unto himself, says, don't forbid them for of such is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to these little ones, the Lord Jesus said. And in, in Luke's account of that, it says that he brought they, that there were brought infants to Jesus as well. He reached out his hand and he blessed them. Now, if the kingdom of God belongs to these little children, who are we to withhold the sign of that kingdom? which is baptism. You see, the covenant and the sign go together. They're inseparable. If the covenant belongs to them, if the kingdom of heaven belongs to them, then the sign belongs to them as well. You can't separate one from the other. And that's why we see throughout the New Testament household baptisms, just like we saw household circumcisions in the Old Testament. Abraham was told to circumcise his whole household. Now, what would we understand by that? Only those who 
could believe? No, very specifically says who was included in his household. Since God hasn't changed his covenant, since he's not qualified it, when we come to the New Testament and we find that the, that the whole household of Lydia was baptized, that the whole household of the Philippian jailer was baptized, that the whole household of Stephanus was baptized, we are to understand that that included, just like in the Old Testament, the whole household, meaning infants as well, if there were any present. Early Christians, dear ones, called baptism a sacramentum, which is the Latin word for the Roman soldier's oath of absolute devotion and obedience to their commander. Baptism is a sacrament for it is God's oath to you and to your children that he will be ever faithful and true to fulfill all that he has promised you. He will bless you. He will bless your children if they are obedient and if they believe, if they love him, if they follow him. But he will be faithful as well to curse those children who rebel and turn their backs upon the covenant. God will be faithful. He will be a God to us and to our children. And likewise, dear ones, your baptism is your oath. Whether you're an adult or whether you've had your children baptized, baptism is your oath to faithfully love and obey the Lord God who saves you from sin, death, and hell. To wear that sacramentum, that badge of baptism without the faith that it assumes and points to is to be a traitor to the Lord God. I close with this final passage. Psalm 78, verses 5 through 7, gives to us our covenant responsibilities, dear ones, in raising our children in the faith. Psalm 78, verses 5 through 7. For he that is God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Covenant blessings, manifold to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. But God will visit the iniquity of those who hate him, who turn their backs upon him to the third and fourth generations. God help us to not set stumbling blocks before our children, but to set stepping stones that will lead them each day, each month, each year into the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you have been faithful unto us. You've been faithful unto our children. We lean upon your faithfulness. 
We rest in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that, yes, God, we are the means, but it is the spirit of God who must draw our children unto himself. If the father does not draw them, they will not come. But, oh, God, what a privilege it is for parents to realize that it is through the means of their faithful and consistent discipline and instruction and love by which these children come to profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, God, help us to be faithful to our covenant obligations. Do not forsake the meeting and the gathering of ourselves together with our children on the Lord's Day. Do not forsake and neglect daily family worship where we daily call our children to believe and repent, to believe in Christ, to turn from their sins, not simply to make a profession of faith once, but to continue making a profession of faith daily through their life, through their words and through their deeds. Oh, God, we pray that you would bless, that you would honor your covenant that you would help us to trust you, to believe that your word is true. Help us not to stand surprised, O oh God, when our children actually do stand before the congregation of the faithful as we witness today and they actually do profess their faith. O oh God, this should not be the exception. This is the norm. So, Father, we pray that you would help us Again, to take comfort in your promises and in your word, for Jesus' sake. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them whatever the Jews devised. 
there is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.